Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. Today, Vince and I will be talking to Sharita Cole-Brown, author of Defying the Verdict, My Bipolar Life. And personally, I love it when another person with bipolar disorder comes and hangs out on the show. We outnumber Vince. Sharita, welcome to the show. Hi. How are you, Gabe and Vince? We're good. Oh, we are doing quite well. We are happy to have you. So the first question that we want to ask right out of the gate is... What made you want to write this book? I mean, of, of all the things that you can do with your time, why write a book? The reason I wanted to write the book, first off, there are a lot of people who live well with a mental illness, but people don't know that because what comes out in, you know, in society is the people who live poorly. So in general, people expect you, if you have bipolar disorder, to be swinging from a chandelier. And it doesn't mean I've never swung from a chandelier, <laughs> but you can, you can live a good life with this illness. So the reason I decided to write the book was to stop being what Dr. K. Jameson calls the silently successful, because there are a lot of people who are living well with bipolar disorder but nobody knows it because of the expectation in the media, et cetera. That is very true, although I think that that's beginning to change, don't you think? I mean, we are seeing more and more people who are being open about their mental illnesses, and I guess more and more people being surprised <laughs> by that. I, I mean, hey, we exist. I, you know, the, the Psych Central show, that was that was kind of our thing when we started, mm -hmm. so we, we couldn't agree with you more, Sharita. Uh, thank you for being vocal. Um, to Vin's question, do you think that it's changing? Are we getting braver? I think that it is changing, but I think because of the stigma, I've lived in um, bipolar recovery for more than 25 years. And for a long time, people that didn't know that I was bipolar, that I have bipolar, I'm not the illness, that, that I have bipolar, didn't know. And it's it was, I didn't share because of the stigma associated with the illness. So one of the things that I am attempting to do with my book as a vehicle is to help change stigma and diffuse stigma and as i like to call it as nami calls it secure stigma you know think of it like an illness and you know although we don't have a cure for bipolar disorder stigma is 100 percent curable very good point very good point can't agree with you more so tell us a bit about your personal experience um, with bipolar disorder. When were you diagnosed and how did that come to pass and all those fun things? Okay. I was diagnosed initially in 1980. I was a student at Wesleyan University. I had just turned 21. And it was interesting because 21 is, used to be the median age of diagnosis. So I was right in, if we could call it a sweet spot, it's not a sweet spot, but I was right there. So I was 21 years old. 
as a student at Wesleyan University when I was originally diagnosed. For me, I saw that as an anomaly, and I took a semester off from school to like get myself together. I had a little bit of therapy. I came back to school, and then in 1982, two months before graduation, I had a psychotic break. And in 1980, I was committed to a hospital because two doctors said I was a danger to myself and others. And then in 1982, I had a wonderful psychologist at Wesleyan, and she sent me home because she did not want the same thing to happen to me. So my parents took me to a therapist and said, you know, given the severity and frequency of my episodes, I had my first depression at 16. Given the severity and frequency, as you guys probably know, every time you have an up and a down, it affects your brain. So the therapist told my parents that what they were probably looking at was this brilliant young woman who will probably eventually end up in custodial care. And that's a very hopeless thing to hear. How did you and your family take this? The thing was, my mom was kind of numb to it because my mother was raised by an actively bipolar mother. So, you know, I have a genetic illness. My grandmother was, had bipolar type 1 disorder. I have a great uncle with bipolar type 1 disorder. So for my mother, she, it was too much. And I will interject that I have a girlfriend who is a psychologist. And you have to understand that that was 1982. We're in 2018. She said that no therapist worth their salt nowadays would speak that to a family or to a client because it is the death knell. And that was the way I received it as the death knell. You are very right. We've come a long way in the way that we talk about these illnesses and, more importantly, the amount of hope that patients are given. Uh, I was diagnosed in 2003 with bipolar disorder, and as soon as I heard the diagnosis, I myself believed that I was going to end up in custodial care, join a group home, and and my life was oh, over. No. But over the next couple of days that I was in the psychiatric hospital, they they quickly explained to me that no, 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 with management, I can be well. So just just between the, the amount of time from your diagnosis to my diagnosis, we've seen some some major differences in how they talk to patients and families. So I think that's right. Your advocacy is working. <laughs> and people have to understand when you when you are so bravely Gabe talking about your illness, it's a twenty year span. Right. It's very true. So in a 20-year span, people have grown in what they see and what they say. So for me, and I have, I have adult daughters, and one of the things I always said with my daughters was that you have to be careful how you speak over your children, what they hear, what you speak into their spirits. So that was what was spoken over me. And it just wasn't good. And it was like, an, it just put me in a fight. I was immediately in a fight. Thank you so much for that answer, Sharita. We'll be back in a moment after we hear from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. 
Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Sharita Cole-Brown talking about her bipolar life. One of the things that you talked about in your press packet was some of the differences between being bipolar in the African-American community. Now, I'll be the first to admit I'm, I'm a white guy. I'm a white middle-class man, straight. This is the only version of bipolar disorder that I know. But I'm not foolish enough to believe that just because we have the same illness that it has played out the same way in our lives. Can you speak to that a little bit? What a great question. And what the question speaks to is culture. And culture is not just color. Culture is how we do things around here. So for me, being an African-American woman, African-American women, if you think back to many years ago, but not so many, to what Mammy was considered to be. Mammy could take care of your children, her children, all kinds of things, take care of the house, do everything with a smile. She was strong. She never got tired. And unfortunately, some of that has seeped into African-American women and our expectation of ourselves. We oftentimes, unfortunately, expect ourselves to be all things to all people. That's not, I've learned, a good way for me to be. And also, since writing the book and while writing the book, I looked at other communities of color. In Farsi, which is Persian, there's no word for mental illness. Um, Asian women, no. Um, are not expected. They're expected to be like the tiger wife and super smart and never have mental illness. Hispanic women, no, no, no. It's not seen as something that would affect us. And one of the good things about writing Define the Verdict, My Bipolar Life, is that I am an African-American woman. And I have a generational illness. And I did the things that I needed to do so that I could get well. Now, fortunately for me, it's in the book, I talk about my aunt, my aunt Nellie, who was my grandmother's sister, who had seen all of this in the family. And she was the person that helped me make it through and appreciate the fact that there were there was a, now a medication and that there were things that I could do to be well. And because she didn't attach guilt or shame to the illness, I still attach shame to it. Because, but because she didn't, it helped me to make it through it. Thank you for bringing up the, the different cultural differences uh, regarding how mental illness is viewed. It's, it's been a concern of mine for quite some time. What do you think can be done, if anything, at this point to to break down that that wall and allow 
people of these cultures to more readily accept what mental illness really is? I believe one of the things that has to happen is that people have to see that there are people of color who do experience mental illness and go on to live successfully. There are books by people of color. Um, there's a book by a woman, Nana Ama Donkwa, and her book is Willow Weep for Me. She's an African woman that grew up in the United States. She actually was one of the people who blurbed my book. And she was the first African-American woman to write about depression. And there is Melanie Moetzi, who is a Persian woman. And when I read her book, that's how I found out that when she got sick, they didn't even have a word for it. So by people coming forth and sharing their story, sometimes it just takes one person to come forth and to empower other people to go, oh, okay, this seems similar to my story. If they can come forward, I can come forward too. And that is another reason why I thought that I needed to write a book. It was scary because a book is in print and people can read it. Because I had talked to people about my illness, but never written it down. But the important thing is that somebody can read this and they can look and say, oh my goodness, this woman, I start my book with hospital records. This woman was completely out of control. And by the end, look at that. She's whatever quote normal is. You know, I mean, she's not okay. She's able to hold things together better than, than she was. And that's what people need to see. Sometimes people really need to see examples. And I don't know if you have seen the same thing in your life, that by people seeing you do well, it's encouraged other people to do well. It absolutely has. You are, you are completely right about that. Many people in the years that I have been doing this have come up to me and said, you know, I didn't believe that I could fill in the blank from as simple as work part-time or go back to school all the way up to work full-time, start a company, buy a house, get married, be a parent. And then they said, you know, I saw you do it. And one of the messages that I always say, and Vin laughs every time I say it, is I'm nobody special. I'm not extra smart. I'm not extra rich. I'm not extra famous. I'm not, I'm just a regular guy that grew up in Ohio. And I was able to do this because I had the right help. So if I can uh -huh. do it, uh, anybody who can access treatment can do it. That's why I fight for treatment. And it's, it's, it's why I try to be so positive. The question that I want to pose for you now is, you know, there, there's, there's always this big conversation in America, which is how are the cultures different? How are the cultures different? And you've done a lot of research. But the question that I want to ask is, how are people with mental illness all the same? I, I mean, how are we the same as, you know, male and female in different cultures? What do we have in common? And it sounds like you've done a lot of research on this and talked to a lot of people. The commonality, I think, for most of us, that I've talked to is the feeling of shame. I can certainly understand that. Is is there more? I mean, it it's just it's so sad. I, I mean, I, I I know that this is not a positive thing to discuss, and and you can kind of probably hear in my voice that I just I want to reach for there have to be some way that we're just all the same, and I it's 
it, it, it is sad that we're all ashamed of our illness and we're all afraid of what people will think. But you're right. That is a binding agent. Um, and in that way, we need each other. And we, you know, when it comes to shame, I feel like when the shame and the fear is what we need, those of us who are doing better, is to help distill hope. And I think that's important. I think for all of us, what we have in common, no matter what race, age, gender, whatever, and this might sound a little schmaltzy, but I believe it, all of us are part of humanity. And I think that is the common, the least common denominator of everybody. You know, we are all people. We are all humans on the planet. I'm a Christian person. I believe that everybody deserves compassion. So I think that's a common denominator that no matter who we are, we are all human beings here together. All of us are like a blind man trying to cross the street. And when you think about it like that, it makes us more willing to help each other. If you think I'm a blind man cross, trying to cross the street, that guy over there, that woman over there, no matter what color, age, you know, gender, if you think about it like that, that we're all just trying to make it through, we're all just trying to cross the street. We don't have a plan here. But if we help each other, it makes it easier. Very well put. I, I totally agree that compassion is something that we need to, to have more of in this and world. And compassion is free. We should spread that everywhere. Yeah, It doesn't cost us a nothing. dime to be considerate to people. I, I can't agree more. I'm sorry, Vin, I cut you off. Please ask your, That's your question. That's all right. I got but excited. I'll, I'll be considerate. And <laughs> um, so, Tell us more about how how you are, are spreading hope for others out there. Before I wrote the book, I talked to people about my process. I'm also very active in the National Alliance on Mental Illness. My local NAMI is NAMI, Maryland. I'm active in NAMI, Baltimore City. I've well, Metropolitan Baltimore, which covers Baltimore City and Baltimore County. I am an in our own voice presenter, which means that I go different places and talk to people about mental illness. I've taken a peer-to-peer course. I recently was trained to become a trainer for primary care physicians. We have a, a new program because a lot of times when people have mental health challenges, the first person they go to is their primary care physician. So I'm part of a pilot program teaching doctors affiliated with two hospitals here in Baltimore, St. Agnes and Harbor Hospital, how, what to look for and how to engage with people so they find it okay to reach out and get the help that they need. That is wonderful. I have been a long-term member and fan of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, mm-hmm. uh, NAMI, for a long time. I was a peer-to-peer teacher 
I Ooh. was a connection facilitator. Mm-hmm. I ran three of their walks here in Columbus, Ohio, as their walk oh, manager. Great. Great. And, uh, I, I love speaking to NAMI chapters. I, I get to travel all over the country and do it. I, I love it when they call and hire me. Uh, I tell the story of uh, my bipolar life. It's called This Bipolar Life. And you're right. You can reach a lot of people quickly when you're part of a bigger organization. And I, I really like your answer there because we get a lot of email. <laughs> you know, how can we become advocates? How can we reach more people? And one of the things that we always recommend is that they join their local mental health agency. Uh, you know, we don't we don't give any particular one. It can be NAMI, of course. It can be Mental Health America. It can be Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. Or you know, there's all kinds yeah. of independence all over there. But so many people try to start their own agency mm-hmm. and put it all on their yeah. back when they can join supported infrastructure and learn and reach many, many people. So I'm glad that you're so heavily involved. Those are good programs that you named. The other thing is when you talked about DBSA, I have some connection to Johns Hopkins. When I did my book launch, one of the doctors at Johns Hopkins came into a Q&A with me. Her name is Karen, Dr. Karen Swartz, and she created the Adolescent Depression Awareness Program through Johns Hopkins Mood Disorder Center. So one of the things that was very gratifying for me was that not only did they post pictures of my launch on the Ask Hopkins Psychiatry Facebook page and Instagram page, people can see those, but they also asked me, can we extract quotes and put them on? Of course you can. So they also extracted quotes from my launch about how I maintain my wellness and posted those at Ask Hopkins Psychiatry. And I was really honored to have that as a part of you know what went on with me. That is wonderful. I love hearing that the patient voice is in front of the medical community because it's, it's so important for all of us to work together. And remember that the goal here is for people with mental illness to be well. It's what we all want. Definitely is. Yes. And the, the, the example that I often use, I'll say, well, okay, if I put on my helmet and get on my skateboard and become a skater girl, and they're like, ha ha, you, and I'm, and let's say I fall off my skateboard and I break my arm in three places, you know, my shoulder, my, my elbow, my wrist, you know, is anybody going to tell me, Sharita, just be tough. Sharita, just pray about it. Sharita, leave it alone. It'll be okay. We don't want to talk about that. No, somebody is going to get me to a hospital somewhere where somebody can deal with the broken bones. And they might say, you know, it was very foolish of you at your age to be on a, um, on a skateboard, but they're, they're going to take care of, of the injury. And one of the things that I often say is that it is important for people to understand that mental illness is physical illness. My brain is part of my body. So the same way you would be concerned about my broken arm, we need to be concerned about brain health and mental wellness. Absolutely. These are things that we've been saying all along. Uh, in fact, that you, you sounded like Gabe there for a minute. 
Did I? Yay. Great minds always think alike. Great minds think alike. <laughs> That's right, Gabe. They do. They do. Well, unfortunately, Sharita, we are approaching the end of our show. So let's take a minute here to talk a little bit more about your book, where people can find it, where they can find you online, and, and all of that fun stuff. My book is Define the Verdict, My Bipolar Life. You can find it Amazon, Barnes & Noble. My website is www.sharitacolebrown.com, and you can see where I have spoken, podcasts that have covered me, different things that relate to the book and how things have gone for me. I would like to say that the, my book was blurbed by Dr. K. Redfield Jameson, the author of An Unquiet Mind. And she said that she highly recommends this book. And she called my writing powerful and eloquent. So I would hope, I, I, I'm not tooting my own horn, I'm reading. Oh, you, you, you <laughs> brag away. You've done a great thing and you deserve it. And we know that you've been on great podcasts because you are on this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you so much for including me. Oh, you're very, very it, welcome. It, it's really wonderful to be a part of your community. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you everyone else for tuning in. Remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Give it a try. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.